We're learning more this morning about the mysterious slaughter. Of One item of interest found turned into multiple families. They were not able to find her. August 24th, the investigation began. Today, they've ruled out an animal attack. Eventually, I'm going to bring my daughter home. A crime spree 40 years long. I'm Jules. And I'm Olive. First and foremost, very exciting news for all of you wonderful people out there. We're actually going to be expanding our social media presence so I can continue to bother you from different corners of the internet. Hell yeah. Uh, Reddit, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram. We already we got, got that Instagram. one. Yep. Uh, I wonder if they would be interested in a Facebook page. A Facebook page? I mean, like, I'm going to make a Facebook page because you know, like, all the, you know little church ladies who also like true crime are always on those Facebook pages. You're not wrong. Okay, yeah. Yeah. You know. All the old little old ladies I have in my life love Facebook pages, so. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> you're right. Okay. We are coming for all of your angles. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a child. Um. <laughs> okay, well... With that being said, I am actually really excited to, you know, expand our social media presence because I want to know what you guys think of this. We want to make it better. We want to make it cooler. We want to make it more, uh, I don't know, easier listen for you. Yeah. So We are going to be playing with the format a little bit, I think. Yeah, just a little bit. A couple tweaks. A couple tweaks. Um, but, uh, but anyway, enough rambling. Let's just get right down to it. Let's do it. Alright, so I'm actually going to be covering our first, uh, it is our first, right? Serial killer? Oh my god! Yeah, it's our first serial killer! Look at us! Um, so, his name was Donald Harvey, also known as the Angel of Death. Um, he was active between the years of 1970 and 1987. Um... I wanted to go ahead because this this case has got like a lot of it's got a lot of moving parts it's got a lot of names and it's got a lot of figures in it mm-hmm. so uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and break this down chronologically because I think that's gonna be the easiest way for us to digest it okay uh, so he was actually born in uh, Butler County Ohio and uh, he was the first of three siblings uh, who were all raised in Alza County out towards Boonville Kentucky um, Boonville it's uh, it's like Share some border with Laurel County oh, out okay. towards like gotcha. London. Yeah. Okay. Now I understand. Um, I have no idea where that is otherwise. Yeah, no, you're good. Um, so he grows up in Boonville, uh, where in the first three months of his life he was dropped on his head. Um, <gasps> they're not, they're so soft. Yeah. His uh, soft spot never closed. No. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah, no, it's extremely unfortunate. And, Jesus. uh, Unfortunately, he would have another head injury in his early childhood after he falls off a flatbed. Um, So, two early childhood head traumas right off the bat. That's a red flag. While he was, uh, like, in his younger years, uh, there was no report of, like, any kind of, like, abuse or neglect in the home from, like, the mother and father. Like, it was actually, like, claimed that he was raised in a very loving, like, traditional Christian household. Okay. Um, but his uncle, uh, Wayne Harvey, um, would repeatedly sexually abuse him throughout his childhood and would, like, he was also paid to allow a neighbor to sexually assault him on multiple occasions uh, in, in, like, his younger years. Um, so that's a lot of pinup trauma. That is horrifying to think about. 
after his childhood, like in uh, like middle school, high school, um, as far as the way that he was perceived by like his teachers, he was considered like a really, really bright kid. He was uh, a pretty good student, A's and B's. He was considered like a teacher's pet. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also kind of means that he was bullied like relentlessly. Oh, I felt that though. Yeah, same. So, uh, you know, from the history of sexual abuse in the home mm-hmm. to, like, the bullying that he was getting at school. Um, eventually, while he was in high school, he just decides, all right, I'm done with this. I'm going to drop out. So he drops out of high school. And uh, for whatever reason, he uh, moves to Cincinnati and uh, he gets a job in a factory. Okay. Um, so he's doing factory work, and uh, it hits like kind of like a lull. Like there's like there's always like a seasonal shutdown right. for factories. Yeah. So he gets laid off, and his mom calls him. And is like, hey, I heard that you know you guys are on shutdown. You're laid off and everything. Uh, your grandfather is extremely ill. So why don't you come back home and help us take care of him? So uh, he moves back to Kentucky. Um, and he, uh, ends up spending a whole lot of time at the Marymount Hospital in London, Kentucky, which, uh, ironically, pretty sure that's the hospital I was born in. Uh, I know for a fact I was born in London, Kentucky, so, uh, (laughs) there's that. Um, but, uh, he kind of, like, starts to make friends with the nurses and the nuns and everything that ran the hospital. Just there so often. Exactly. Okay. And also bear in mind at this point in time, he is 18. He is 18 years old. Um, and this is 1970. Okay. Um, so eventually the nurses and nuns are like, Hey, we know that you're unemployed. Do you need a job? Cause you could work as an orderly. And he's like, yeah. And starts the next day. No medical training. You could just do that in the 70s, man. They didn't care. Yeah, they literally, they were just letting any old Joe Schmo, like, what is it, Tom, Dick, and Harry? Yeah. Like, just stroll in there and just start working at a fucking hospital. And it's not like they just had him, like, you know, rotating patients, changing sheets, doing bedpans. No, he, like, administered medications. He assisted in catheter insertions. Like, he was doing medical procedures. Um, That's so illegal now. Very, very much illegal. He was essentially like a CNA, but not a CNA. With zero training. Yeah. Nice. Um, so oh. during his first few weeks at uh, Marymount Hospital, mm-hmm. um, he just kind of like blended in, you know, like it just like it was uneventful. It was just like your standard day to day. He was just doing his job. Right. Um, however, at one point... Um, he gets into a altercation with, uh, someone in the stroke unit. Um, so like a lot of the units that Harvey worked in were... Like a patient? Yes. Okay. Uh, but, uh, a lot of the units that he worked in were like, it was shit like stroke patients. They were like, you know, late term dementia and Alzheimer's patients. They were like coma patients. Like... So almost like hospice. Yeah, so like they hospice. Were, an, a good outcome was not expected. Right, exactly. Okay. Like these these are people who were more than likely entering the last moments of their life. Right. Um so he kind of like had that advantage almost. Yeah, he had like he had like the advantage of like people aren't looking for these people to survive. Right. 
So whenever this stroke patient smears feces all over his face, oof, um, he snaps, just like snaps, mm-hmm. and suffocates him with a pillow and a plastic bag. Are you shitting me? No. Like, he literally, like, snaps oh my and kills the guy. Look, man, I work in direct patient care. Some patients have done some really shitty, fucked up things to me. But to me, snapping is telling them to fuck off and going to the break room. It's not literally murdering someone. Right. And as somebody who has had feces smeared on them by patients several times in, like, the last month, I can tell you without a doubt. That my version of snapping is, oh, geez. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like, it's just like, it just, this is a work hazard. Like, You're a wee bit more restrained than I. It's, uh, you know, the, they're small. <laughs> uh, but, uh, sorry, now I'm just thinking about poop jokes. It's just <laughs> as a person. Okay. Uh, so... So after the death of his first victim, Kogan Evans, at the ripe old age of 88, uh, three weeks later he commits his first quote-unquote mercy killing Mm. um, of Elizabeth Wyatt. She was 42 years old at the time, and uh, her 12-year-old granddaughter was actually in the room with them when this happened. Um, allegedly, uh, Wyatt had, uh, just been, like, essentially begging for the release of death. Okay. And, uh... It was just, he disconnected her O2 mask from, uh, the, like, actual oxygen tank itself, and, uh, Uh, she died shortly after. What the fuck? A mercy killing does not include letting someone suffocate to death. Right? I didn't necessarily think, like, you know, gasping for air and feeling your lungs collapse was merciful, but okay, go off then. Seriously, what the fuck? Yeah, well, I mean, like, as far as fucked up murders go, it definitely gets a lot worse. Um, Awesome. So, he kills Evans, right? Okay. And, like, as he stated, uh, no one ever questioned it. Mm. Like, he cleaned up, like, uh, you know, himself. Like, he took a shower, cleaned up the body and everything. Mm -hmm. And just couple weeks went by nobody questioned it he does the second killing of uh, elizabeth wyatt a mm-hmm. couple weeks go by no one questions it so at this point dude's getting cocky and he starts experimenting with different ways to kill people awesome yeah yeah beautiful yeah. we love that cool um just for an example um a man named james tyree uh he gave them the wrong catheter. Like, it was, like, a larger catheter than required. No. And then he perforated his bladder and bowels with a, uh, bent coat hanger? No! And... So he fucking tortured him. Yeah. And then he pinned him to the bed until he started vomiting blood, suffocated, and died. Oh my god. And once again, no one asked any questions... It's really disgusting and heartbreaking from someone who does, you know, work with a trusted population to think that someone could be taking advantage. Oh, yeah. Of the people that they're supposed to be fucking taking care of. Right. So during this stint in this London, Kentucky hospital, um, he actually commits his first premeditated murder. Mm -hmm. Um, 
a individual named Bill Gilbert uh, got in a confrontation with Harvey because he was convinced Harvey was trying to kill him. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, probably. To be fair. Yeah, to be fair. Uh, Gilbert takes a bedpan and smacks him across the head and knocks him out. Damn. During this altercation. Yeah, so... Uh, this is back in the day when the bedpans were, like, steel. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, this was... It was probably a surplus bedpan, for oh, being honest. Yeah. But, uh... So, he knocks Harvey out. Whenever Harvey, like, comes to and everything, uh, that night, he goes to his room, mm-hmm. inserts too large of a catheter, and again, perforates his bladder and bowel oh with God. a bent coat hanker, and it takes him four days to die of sepsis and infection. Oh, my God. Yeah, so fucking brutal what a monster like what the fuck exactly so uh around this time uh he starts getting involved with this man named uh vernon midden okay so uh these two end up entering a romantic relationship with each other at the time and uh midden was like an avid occultist okay uh we're talking Black magic, sacrificial Ooh, ritual type. That's not good. Yeah, type of good. occult We don't stuff. fuck with that over here. Yeah. So, uh, Harvey just, like, takes it upon himself to, uh, take a look at, the, like, the inventory of the mortuaries of the places that he's working at. Do not tell me. This man does no. swipe body parts. Yep. No. Uh, rumored to have swiped body parts from London. Also, uh, rumored to swipe body parts from another hospital that he worked at that I will be mentioning here in a minute. Um, so during this time, like, the relationship between him and Midden just kind of goes sour. Yeah. And, uh, like, it's getting to the point to where, like, Harvey's gonna have to step down because the hospital's like, some fucky shit's going on. We're not gonna say anything. If you don't say anything, just resign from your position type situation. Gotcha. Uh, so, on top of, like, you know, things going south in his relationship, Mm -hmm. his whole murdering racketeer, like, his whole murdering racket is now going down the toilet. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he's just, like... His whole life is imploding. Exactly. So he's gonna do what a lot of people decide to do in these moments, get belligerently drunk, and go try to rob a motherfucker. (laughs) So, uh, he, uh, ends up trying to break into, like, his ex-boyfriend's house. Alright, we've reached the shitty ex phase. Exactly. So, uh, he goes to, like, break into his house and, like, steal some of his stuff, and, like, the cops show up and everything, and, uh, he was, uh, arrested by KSP. Okay. And, uh, while he was, uh, being interrogated by investigators, he was just, like, drunk babbling about all of these murders that he committed Mm -hmm. in Marymount Hospital. Okay. Yeah. So, he's sitting there rambling, and KSP does nothing about it. Shocker. Shocker. Uh, like, in all of the official documentations that I have Mm -hmm. found about it, it says that KSP followed up on leads by contacting the hospital, but they did no further investigation. Why the fuck not? Right? Like, what's the fucking reason? Like... You just didn't feel like it that day, or... It was too boring, you had black people to shoot, like, what was going on? Like... Yeah, I mean... 
Listen. We all know. We all know. I just said it. <laughs> uh, Did you just hear my dog in the background? <laughs> Even my dog agrees. Uh, so they end up letting him go. He gets slapped with like a $50 fine. Oh, $50. Yep. For stealing body parts from the morgue. Well, he didn't get caught by KSP doing that. Oh, he that's got right. caught. Yeah, he. This was for burglarizing and terrorizing his ex boyfriend. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so uh, he gets slapped with a fifty dollars fine. But like the judge, I couldn't figure out exactly what was said during the trial. Mm-hmm. All it said was that the judge strongly recommended psychiatric assistance. <laughs> um, but instead, our boy joins the air force. All right, that's the kind of people we need guarding this country i guess yeah so uh he ends up joining the air force but he serves less than a year uh before he received a general discharge in march of 1972 um the records listed like unspecified grounds for discharge uh but like if i had to guess he probably got caught being gay Oh my god, yeah, probably. Yeah, like, I would say, with it not being, like, a dishonorable discharge and him not just, like, fucking disappearing, uh, it was probably with either somebody in a position of power or somebody who meant literally nothing to the, to, like, you know, the Air Force. Yeah. And then they end up discharging him. Uh, another popular rumor was that they had, like, learned of his confessions to KSP and didn't want to, like, deal with any similar matters in the future. Um. Can you blame him? I mean, like, No. It's risk assessment management. Yeah, and I mean, like, if you're a military branch and you're like, oh, wow, this man lost his marbles, drunk rambled about murdering people after he broke into his ex-boyfriend's house, maybe I shouldn't give this man a gun. You'd think they would have figured that out before they admitted him. Right? So, uh... After his release from the military, um, Harvey deals with, like, several really bad bouts of depression. Mm -hmm. Um, so... He ends up, like, having to check himself into, uh, like, a few different, like, stints in the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. uh, just for, like, suicidal thought and ideation. Um, He ended up remaining in uh, the VA Medical Center in Lexington from July of 1972 until August 25th. Um, but then a few weeks later, he admits himself again be, due to a, uh, a failed suicide attempt. So, with all the wisdom in the world that could be possibly contained in the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky in the 70s, they decided that in response to this man's failed suicide attempt, they were going to restrain him to the bed and administer a total of 21 electroshock therapy treatments. Um... Those yeah. don't work. No. Those really just don't fucking work. They really just fucking don't. Turns out that you can't zap yourself into being happy. If you could, I'd be happy. Uh, <laughs> Damn. Oops. <laughs> okay. Uh, so he's actually released from, uh, he's discharged from the mental ward on October 17th, 1972. Um, his mother, Goldie Harvey, actually later condemned the hospital for releasing him so abruptly because, like, she felt that there was, like, no change. Like, absolutely no change in his behavior. Which, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Like, all you, all you did was electrocute a motherfucker. Like, 
so, like, he's, like, attempting to get his life back on track now, and, like, eventually he gets, like, a few, like, normal jobs. Okay. Uh, so he uh, ends up working at Cardinal Hill. It's a rehab facility in Lexington. Like, um, a, like a drug rehab? No, like, a physical therapy. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, like an outpatient program. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so he's like a part-time nurse's aide there. Um, he takes on a second job at Lexington's Good Samaritan Hospital. Um, he took up a job as a telephone operator after that. And then he secured a clerical job at St. Luke's Hospital in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Um, According, Always medical. Yeah, all, all of this is pretty medical. Um, his later confessions, he says he was able to, like, quote-unquote, control his urge to kill during this time. But in my opinion, I think that it just wasn't fucking convenient for him. Yeah. Because, like, Cardinal Hill being, like, a rehab facility, all those patients are expected to leave. You yeah. know what I mean? And then, like, he only had clerical positions at his other, like... Uh, medical facilities. He, he wasn't was doing at. one-on-one patient care anymore. Exactly. He wasn't yeah. doing one-on-one patient care. And even when he was, these weren't the kinds of patients he was used to killing. Like, he right. was used to killing, like, end-of-life patients. Right. Yeah. Uh, Those whose deaths would not be questioned. Exactly. Um, and, like, he just didn't have the same access to, like, you know, hospital Vulnerable equipment. individuals. And vulnerable in- individuals. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, like, it was a little bit different at the Marymount Hospital because, like, he knew all the nuns. He had, like, gotten mm-hmm. really, like, in cahoots with everybody. Yeah. So, like, it was really easy for him to go pillage for supplies. But yeah. at these other places, not so much. They weren't um, as friendly to him. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, so, jumping forward just a little bit, um, in September of 1975, Harvey moves back to Cincinnati. Right? Okay. So, like, Cincinnati's where he went to get his factory job before he moved to Kentucky. Right. Okay. Uh, so, he moves back up there, and within weeks, he gets a job working night shift at the Cincinnati VA Medical Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, duties varied. He had several different tasks. Um, but he did work as, like, a nursing assistant, a cardiac catheterization technician, and an autopsy assistant. Ooh. Yeah, so he had a lot of different kinds of access to a lot of different really advanced medical procedures. Yeah. Um, and during this time, he worked night shift. So, as we all know, if you've ever worked night shift literally anywhere, there is absolutely no supervision. No, absolutely not. I worked night shift for a year, and there were like eight people in the building. Exactly. Exactly. So he was just kind of like, oh, this is it. This is the gig. You know what I mean? I hate it. So, uh, he essentially gets unlimited access to all areas of the hospital. Uh And, uh, this is where he does a big chunk of murdering. Uh, so over the next 10 years, he murders at least 15 patients while working at the hospital. Um, he actually kept a precise... 10 years? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. He kept a, uh, precise diary on uh like how he like murdered certain victims uh so like his version of almost like a souvenir yes yeah so instead of taking souvenirs he writes in his diary like a teenage girl Uh, (laughs) like that's uh, not even putting enough faith in teenage girls i think honestly i started a diary once (laughs) (laughs) uh started uh don't talk to me or my empty notebooks ever again. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so he keeps, like, his little black book of murder notes. 
and uh, he starts getting a little more experimental in his different uh, his different methods. So you know you've got. Uh, pressing a plastic bag and a wet towel over your mouth and nose, rat poison in your dessert, arsenic and cyanide to orange juice, injecting cyanide. Um, this guy was like a murdering MacGyver. Right? It's disgusting. And the entire time he was committing all these crimes, he was actually refining himself by reading and studying all the medical journals and uh, like medical textbooks that he had access to because he was quote-unquote furthering his work repertoire god damn it that is that yeah so while he was there two specific uh ghastly murders um donald barney who was a 61 year old male uh he fed him cyanide through his feeding tube and then injected cyanide into his butt straight into the buttocks um, and then another individual, Claiborne Kendrick, he was poisoned with cyanide through his gastric tube, and then in, he had cyanide injected directly into his testicles. No! Yeah. That's terrible! I don't even have balls and my balls hurt. Same. Like... <laughs> yeah. I can't even... Ugh. Okay. Over the years, he was pilfering from like these hospitals right mm-hmm. so he's amassed a massive amount of cyanide oh i'm talking God. like 30 pounds of cyanide why do hospitals even have cyanide uh well i mean like sometimes that they use them for like bonding agents whenever they compound medicines oh, i know okay. and also like i know that cyanide is like an active what it's an active factor in some gases too so like in order to create antidotes of certain things you have to have uh. That thing on hand. That makes sense. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, you know. And also, it's the 70s. <laughs> yeah, like... It was not that long ago that you could get cocaine at the grocery store. In the early... We're gonna, like, jump forward a bit. Because, like, he does all this stuff under the radar. Nobody asks any fucking questions. Because, like, the the, the victim selection is so specific. Like, the method of, uh, the method of death is, like, specifically selected... By the type of victim so that like you know he's like he doesn't have an mo that would look like a pattern exactly okay yeah exactly um and a chameleon killer a chameleon killer yes and he's got all of this uh newly found refined medical knowledge that helps him decide which methods <laughs> of killing are going to be the hardest to detect for which patients that's fucking evil yeah it's literally fucking evil um, so we are going to fast forward just a little bit into the early 1980s. Um, this is like kind of a weird time for Harvey because he actually moves in with, uh, a new lover, uh, okay. Carl Howler. Um, and I'm guessing from all the added stress of, you know, poisoning people in their off time, uh, <laughs> he, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> he starts to uh, essentially just convince himself that like his partner is cheating on him. Mm. Like he's just like this bitch is walking out on me, and I can't be having that. So out of fear that uh, his partner was cheating, he just slips small doses of arsenic into his food so that he'd be too sick to leave the apartment. No, that's not no. how we do that. No. 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 Uh Uh-uh. Let's try having a conversation (laughs) before we try poison. Use your words. Exactly. So, at this point, he's at peak confidence. He's just gotten away with many a murder at two different hospitals. 
He's flying right under the radar. Or exactly. so he thinks. Yeah, so he thinks. Um, so he starts just poisoning fucking everybody. Like, uh, following an altercation with a female neighbor, um, he laces her drink with hepatitis B. What the fuck? Yeah, and the infection almost fucking kills this woman before she gets treatment. Um, Yeah, it's Hep B. It does that. Yeah. And then uh, another neighbor, uh, her name was Helen Metzger, uh, was not so lucky. Uh, She did not live. Uh, He put arsenic into one of her pies, and she died later that week at a local hospital. What the fuck, man? Yeah. And then, in 1983, um, he gets into, like, a fight with uh, Howler's parents, and he starts poisoning their fucking food. His boyfriend's parents. Yeah, his boyfriend's parents. He starts poisoning their fucking food. Oh my god. Uh, so, on May 1st, 1983, Howler's father, Henry Howler, suffered a stroke and was remitted to, uh, I think it's Providence Hospital? Yeah, Providence Hospital. Um, so, Harvey visited Henry Howler and put arsenic in his pudding. Oh. Yeah, Real while smooth. he was in the stroke unit. Real smooth. This, wow. Yeah. So, uh, he would actually end up passing later that night. Um, Harvey also continued to poison Carl's mother, um, Margaret Howler, off and on for the next year, but was unsuccessful in his attempts to kill her. So, she was just sick all the time. Um, then in nineteen, 19- Nobody fucking deserves this. Nobody. Nobody deserves this. And, uh, then in 1984, in January, uh, Howler breaks it off, right? So he, like, says, listen, I don't want to do this anymore. You bat shit. It's over. Move Pack out. your shit. Pack your shit. Get yeah. the fuck out. And, uh, Harvey was Good for him, by the way. Oh, yeah. No. Fucking good for him. Good on you. Yeah. Like, I can't even imagine how toxic this man was outside of the fact that he poisons people when they don't do what he wants. Seriously. Like, what the fuck? Uh, so, obviously, we can, as we can expect, Harvey was very, very angry and upset about this. Uh, Shocker. So he, right? So, he spends the next two years trying to kill Howler. Um, and at one point, he even tried to kill a female friend of Howler's as a way to get revenge. Why? I just, like, she was just like, he's bad for you, get away from him. And then, like, she Harvey deserves like, to die. <laughs> But I'm not, I'm not a bad guy. I'm really not a bad guy. And to prove it, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> like, Honestly, yeah. I've dated one of those. Damn. Uh, you have, though. I have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh... <laughs> well, neither of those attempts work. So, like, he ends up not being able to kill Howler. And he doesn't kill the female friend. Um, Howler does actually end up in the hospital, like, several fucking times. Oh, my God. Because of, uh, you know, he was unknowingly poisoned and was just, like, Thought sick. he was sick. Yeah. While leaving work in 1985. So, this is, like, after Howler, after all this other stuff. Okay. Um, he slips up just a little bit. Right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, security guards notice him, like, acting suspicious, and, like, he's carrying around, like, a big, like, duffel bag, like, a little satchel mm-hmm. situation. Um, and they stop and search it, and they find out that he was carrying a, uh, 38 caliber pistol, hypodermic needles, surgical scissors and gloves, a cocaine spoon, uh, various medical texts, two occult books, and a biography of serial killer Charles Sabra. Uh, hmm. Yeah. 
Weird so, assortment of items. Yeah, very weird assortment of items. Um, and then uh, they just kind of were like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to smack you with another $50 fine because you had a firearm on federal grounds. Right. Because he was at a VA hospital. And uh, you're going to resign. And that's it. Yep. That's it. Nothing about the incident was ever noted in his work record. Hospital authorities did not open an investigation. So, essentially, they were just like, yeah. Go on about your business. Sorry about you. Damn. Yeah. So, That's it? Uh, yep, that was it. That was it. He just got fired. And then, seven months later, in February of 1986, he once again gets a fucking job at a local hospital um this time he was hired as a part-time nurse's aide at cincinnati's drake memorial hospital um his new employers like had no idea of the incident at the previous job why is no one communicating with each other absolutely like, nobody is none of this following him right none of it literally none of it jesus everybody's Christ. just like oh it's okay listen sorry we're sorry that this happened to you have a nice life. And I just don't understand that. Yeah. I just really don't. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, like, no communication, completely unaware of the incident, the previous job, like, all of his work folders just had just nothing but grand, wonderful things to say about him. Um, so just, like, a complete disregard for consequences. Yes. And accountability. Right. So, obviously, this man has literally gotten away with murder, and continues to just be able to lie, sleaze, and cheese his way through the medical system just because nobody wants to actually talk about the scandals that happened in their hospitals. That's what it boils down to. That's so fucking disappointing. Right? I can't say I'm surprised, but... Disappointed, not surprised. For real, seriously. Um, so... He soon earns a full-time position with a fantastic work record and goes right back to murdering folks. Uh, So over the next 13 months, he murders another 23 patients. Good lord. A few different ways, just disconnecting life support machines, uh, just like pumping like an air bubble directly into an IV feed. Yeah. Um, suffocation, injections of arsenic, cyanide, and even some petroleum-based cleansers. So, like, essentially an oil-based cleanser, he's essentially putting, like, micellar water, like, into their bloodstream. Oh my god. Um, but, everything starts to come to a head in 1987. So, in 1987, uh, a man named John Powell was uh, staying in, uh, like, a coma unit after a motorcycle accident. So, Mm -hmm. like, he was, like, kind of coming out of it. Like, they were seeing some, uh, like, evidence of brain activity. They, like, like, dude was getting better. He was healing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then all of a sudden, he dies. Mm. So, with this being a situation where they're like, this guy should have woke up, there's no reason he should be dead. They do an autopsy, and as soon as they open that body cavity, the medical assistant uh, who was working there Mm -hmm. was like, almonds. This smells exactly like fucking almonds. 
and that's Telltale sign of cyanide. Right. Turns out this man had, like, an ungodly amount of cyanide pumped into his body. Mm-hmm. So, uh, immediately authorities are notified. They, uh, go ahead, they clear friends, family, and all that other stuff, and then they start isolating, like, the people who had direct access to the patient. Mm-hmm. So, that night, uh, they just, like, concentrate all of their investigation on, uh, Donald Harvey. Um, because, I mean, like, the list of people who had access to John Powell's room is gonna be, like, really fucking short. You right, know what I mean? because this is a longer-term, higher amount of care Exactly. Unit. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, they also learned that his nickname was the Angel of Death because he was always around when people fucking died. I wonder fucking why. Right? Tell me why. So, uh, in April 1987, after securing a search warrant, uh, investigators find, like, a mountain of evidence against him. Uh-huh. Uh, they find jars of cyanide and arsenic, books on the occult, poisons, and detailed accounts of murders in his diary. They find a detailed account of the murder of John Powell in his diary. So, they arrest him, right? Yeah. Blasts all over the news. Obviously. Uh. I would hope so. Right. So, anchor Pat Benarson at WCPO-TV, which is ABC, like, Channel 9 ABC in Cincinnati, right? Okay. Um, he gets the briefing on all of the evidence uh, that they found, and he's like, bro, there's no way this guy just killed this one person. Right. No way. So, he puts together all of the details of it, and he does a 30-minute, like, special, right, on okay. air, where he's like, hey, this is everything we know. If you have any, like, possible connection to this, if one of your family members mysteriously died while they were under the care of this person, please contact us. And uh, nurses came forward from the other hospitals he worked at. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, family members came forward. Um, like, and even also about the nurses, they were actually told to just keep it under wraps by hospital administrators. Oh, I'm not surprised. Not surprised. At all. Deeply disappointed. Absolutely, but not surprised. Correct. So, he puts together this half-hour report on all these findings, right, that link him to the murders of 24 people over a four-year period. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so... He... Obviously, all of this stuff gets presented to, uh, to the police, the original charge was one count of aggravated murder, and after filing a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, he was held under a $200,000 bond. So after his bond is set, like, and he, like, you know, gets to go speak to his lawyer more than just, like, don't answer that, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, Um, his lawyer's like, so, like, how, did you, uh, how many people have you killed? You know, and he's like, eh, around like 70, oh, 70 okay. more people. 70 people. Yeah. So, uh, his lawyer's like, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to do a plea bargain because this is your only hope. Yeah. Of not going to the electric chair. Exactly. Because of the way that Ohio's death penalty works. Right. So on August 11th, 1987, um, Donald Harvey was... 35 years old and he sits down with investigators and he confesses to committing 33 murders over the past 17 years 
However, as the days go by and they like keep presenting him like with this evidence of these links and all that other stuff, um, his number eventually grows to like the total 70, right? Oh my god. Um, investigators were like skeptical of the numbers that Harvey was giving him, so they wanted to have his mental state assessed before like taking his claims like with any kind of reason. Right. Um, so he goes through like several psychiatric tests by like a few different like psychiatric professionals and uh, a spokesman for the Cincinnati uh, prosecutor's office explained to the Cincinnati Post that quote this man is sane competent but is a compulsive killer he builds up tension in his body so he kills people so essentially what this man is saying is this man gets so fucking stressed out he snaps and murders I don't know man like I've snapped before my snapping doesn't look like this. My snapping does not look like this either. The fuck? Snapped? Snapped. And then murdered. Yeah, I don't know. That's a leap. Yeah. That's a leap. Uh. And continued to murder for 70 people? Yep. I highly doubt it. Highly fucking doubt so, on August 18th, 1987, uh, Donald Harvey goes to trial, uh, and he... Well, not really, like, trial, because where he's doing a plea bargain, like, there's no jury. He just kind of goes in front of the judge. He's sentencing. Yeah, exactly. Um, he pleads guilty to 24 counts of aggravated murder, uh, four counts of attempted murder, and one count of felonious assault. Uh, however, four days later, a 25th guilty plea uh, earned him a total of four consecutive 20-year, uh, like, 25-year-to-life sentences. In addition to his life terms, he was also fined $270,000. Um, so those were just his sentences for the murders that occurred in Ohio. Um, now he was indicted in Kentucky on September 7th, 1987, where he confessed to committing the 12 murders while employed at Marymount Hospital in London. Um, that following November, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to eight life terms plus 20 years. Um, in February 1988, he entered guilty pleas on three additional Cincinnati homicides and three attempted murders, drawing three more life sentences plus three terms of seven to 25 years. My God. Yeah. I mean, like, good. But that's a lot. That is a lot. It was a mouthful. Um, so two years later, the investigation into the remaining deaths were actually closed uh, after investigators determined that uh, there just wasn't enough cohesive evidence to pursue them, which just like, just seems like a big fuck you. You know what I mean? To the survivors. Exactly. Of the, like the family survivors. Yeah. No, I can't imagine like my family member being already being in a vulnerable position mm -hmm. And then being taken advantage of by a goddamn fucking monster. And then the monster gets caught, but doesn't have to answer for the fact that he murdered my family member. Right. Like, there's, yes, he's behind bars, but there's no justice. Exactly. And, like, I guarantee that the attitude of investigators whenever they notified the victims was, he's put away... It's, it's fine. fine. No, it's fucking not. It's really fucking not. Do your fucking job and charge his ass. Seriously. Uh, so, uh, just real quick, I did want to give, uh, kind of, like, an insight into, like, the way that, uh, Donald Harvey's mind worked. Because in 1991, uh, a reporter from Columbus Dispatch uh, like, went in and did an interview with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, the reporter says, why did you kill? To which Harvey responds, well, 
people controlled me for 18 years and then I controlled my own destiny. I controlled other people's lives, whether they lived or died. I had that power to control. Well, what right did you have to decide that? He responds, after I didn't get caught for the first 15, I thought it was my right. I appointed myself judge, prosecutor, and jury, so I played God. The sheer entitlement right. in that exchange. And then just like the cringy, people controlled me for 18 years. You were a fucking child. Yeah. Like. But I do want to mention uh, this distinct parallel uh, between uh, the two individuals that we're actually going to be covering today. Because uh, I'm going to tell you right now. Trauma is what causes violence. Absolutely. Like, it's not the only thing that can cause violence, but trauma and mental illness are definitely two contributing factors that are going to lead to somebody having a psychotic break that, you know, ends in violence. Absolutely. So, yeah, he was controlled for the first 18 years of his life, and he had a lot of horrible fucking shit that happened to him, and he definitely needed help. He, like, even a judge told him, like, dude, you need to go get mental help. Right. But the fact of the matter is, the man never took responsibility for his mental health, so he turned into a fucking monster, and now he has to suffer the consequences. Yeah. Yeah, so, speaking of suffering consequences, um, a little street justice... Uh, Donald Harvey actually died on March, uh, in March of 2017 after he was attacked and beaten to death by a cellmate. Oh, no. Oh, how horrible. He only lived to 64. And took the lives of how many people with him? Uh, by his count, like, 70-something, so... Jesus Christ. What a fucking... Just loser. Yeah. And uh, funny enough, his first scheduled parole hearing was set for 2047. <laughs> he would have been 95. Good luck, buddy. Fuck you. No. Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy indeed. Wow. That was kind of hard to listen to. It only gets worse, though. Um, so I'm going to be discussing the 1997 school shooting at Heath High School in Paducah, Kentucky. Shout out to Paducah. On Thanksgiving Day of 1997, 14-year-old Heath High School freshman Michael Carneal breaks into a neighbor's garage and steals several firearms, including four 22 rifles, a 30-30 rifle, and some 12-gauge ammo. He also stole a Ruger 22 pistol with magazines and two shotguns from his own home. Four days later, he takes two shotguns, two rifles, and two handguns from his personal armory that he's stolen from neighbors and family, bundles them in a blanket, and gets in the car so his older sister can drive him to school. When she turns to him and asks, Hey, what the fuck are you holding? He plays it off as a school play prop. <laughs> so, at 7.45 in the morning, he arrives at school, walks in the front entrance, puts in earplugs, and fires eight rounds into a student youth group in the hallway, saying a prayer. The leader of this youth group is named Benjamin Strong, and he was actually a pastor's son. And he convinces Carneal to stop shooting and drop his weapons. Carneal then surrenders to Bill Bond, who's the school principal, um, turns to Ben Strong and says, kill me, please. I can't believe I did that. Bill Bond, principal, locks him into an office until police arrive and school is canceled with a rendezvous point being set up at the local middle school. Okay, so that's fucking horrible. 
Mm-hmm. But could you imagine the embarrassment of having to be bused from the high school to the middle school so the <laughs> cops can pick you up? <laughs> I mean, it's the least they can do. For real. So Carneal fires eight rounds into this crowd. Um, he hits eight people, three of which are killed, five injured. Um, the killed include Nicole Hadley. She was a 14-year-old freshman and band member. She was a basketball player, and she had moved from Nebraska to Kentucky the year before. Her parents donated her organs and were commended by President Bill Clinton for doing so. Jessica James was a 17-year-old student in the marching band. She died in surgery at Western Baptist Hospital that day. Casey Steger was a 15-year-old member of the band and Agape Club. She was a softball player, an honor student, as well as a law enforcement explorers member. She wanted to be in the police force whenever she graduated. Carniel had actually asked Casey out weeks earlier and had been rejected by her. Oh. Yeah, so that adds another layer to things, I think. Um, among the injured include Shelly Schauberg. She was a 17-year-old basketball player um, described as the best female athlete at Heath High School. And she had actually already procured a scholarship to college, um, like a basketball scholarship. After the shooting, she was too injured to play. Thankfully, the college did still honor her scholarship, though. Um, Melissa Jenkins was a 15-year-old student and the president of the Future Homemakers of America Association. Um, she was shot in the chest and paralyzed. Damn. Yeah. 15. Kelly Alsip was a 16-year-old student. She played softball and was also a member of the Future Homemakers of America Association. Craig Keane was a 15-year-old student who was a member of the Agape Club, the band, and who also played basketball. And Holland Holm was a 14-year-old freshman, a member of the Academic and Spanish Clubs, as well as Science Olympiad. When he was a senior, he would go on to be the valedictorian, and his speech included a memorial to those that were lost to this horrific event. Absolute fucking tragedy. Just, just tear. I can't even. I'm speechless. Now, this wasn't something that came out of left field. No. Carneal had been showing so many warning signs, and we're going to go over those. But these are all warning signs that should have been noticed by literally every adult in his life. It's not like this was the 1800s. People understood. Oh, hey. Mental illness. Yeah, like, it was, like, it was at least a thing. Absolutely. There were definitely, there were definitely people who, like, were supposed to be well-versed in mental health, employed at a Paducah high school. (laughs) I can tell you that. Absolutely. Like. Um, so we're gonna go over his warning signs. So, he was bullied, you know, he had a small frame, and there was actually a school paper gossip column that mentioned his name and suggested that he had a crush on a male peer. So he was bullied for being gay and for being small Mm -hmm. and he wore glasses and I'm sure that Mm. that didn't help. No. Um, He was really obsessed with the movie The Basketball Diaries in which Leonardo DiCaprio is cheered on while shooting a teacher. That's not a red flag. Not at all. No, no, no. Um, For quite some time before the tragedy... He had been showing symptoms of paranoia. Um, so mom, his mother had found a stash of knives in his bedroom whenever he Awesome. Was, yeah, for real. Uh, whenever he was asked what the knives were for, it was in case anybody came in so that he could protect himself and his family. Oh. Yeah. Um, he also 
He would also cover the air vents with towels in their bathroom at home in case there were people in the vents to watch or in the vents watching them. Oh. Yeah. Um, he struggled to sleep in his own bedroom, which alone, maybe not a huge deal. But I uh, mean, like, stacked with absolutely everything else that was going on. Oh, dude, you haven't even heard the rest. Oh, no. There's more. Um, he often took his father's handgun to school because it made him feel safer. Okay. Yeah. Um, he joked with classmates about pulling a gun at school <laughs> and fire. seeing everyone's reaction. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, you know it would be hilarious? If I pulled this fucking gun out and pointed it at you and you screamed like you were going to die, wouldn't that be so funny? I'm just like, not fucking interested. Exactly. Like, yeah. it's just like... Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, you know, you know teachers overheard these fucking conversations. Of course they did. Like, they literally, like, teachers love to listen in on high schoolers. Oh, they are so fucking it. nosy. But, like, it's just, like, you know that somebody heard him talking about this Absolutely. that wasn't an adolescent. And we'll talk about, there were people outside of his, you know, direct scope who knew about this, too. Oh. So, yeah. Um, he told people that he liked to avoid the morning prayer circle and even warned people that something big would happen on Monday. Oh. Yeah. And Will Alonzo, um, his little brother, Will Alonzo, whose little brother was friends with Carneal, mm -hmm. actually stated that he was, that Carneal was using stolen credit card numbers to buy stuff on the internet, which I didn't even think was a thing back in 97. Like, it just took, online like, shopping. Yeah, no, it just took, like, fucking 11,000 years because you were going, ah! <laughs> okay valid point um weeks prior to the shooting carneal actually stole a 38 caliber weapon from his parents and tried to sell it at school okay um a classmate threatened to call the cops unless he Lame. gave him the gun Lame. i mean like guess i'm kind of thankful well yeah i mean like yeah but also lame yeah and that's also i feel like another reason like, another stone stacked on top of him. So, like, was he like, hey, I'm gonna call the cops if you don't give me the gun? Or... Yeah, he was like, I will tell the police on you unless you give me that. Oh, that you okay. have a gun. And Carneal folded. The peer actually told him that he would pay him eventually and just never did. Oh. Uh, yeah. So, per Murderpedia, when it was over, Michael said he'd imagined it all differently. He thought he'd fire one shot, everyone would take off running... And he could run around and do stuff and take over the school. He expected to return to school the next day, and everyone would be nice to him then. You know, it is, like, I understand that what he did was absolutely horrific, but, like, him being a 14-year-old boy, like, he definitely had some kind of mental illness going on. I mean, you don't start hearing bent people without <laughs> having, like, something going on. Uh, and not only did he obviously... You know, was he going through some kind of mental health crisis? He was also crying out for help. Exactly. And, like, even at the end of it, he was like, I just wanted everyone to be nice to me. He, literally. And, like, I don't know, just goes to show. Just goes to show. Sometimes you can bully people into murdering. Like, I don't know, man. I was bullied pretty hard. I was also bullied pretty I hard. I never that heard is anybody true. about it. I, yeah, you're right. I've never committed a murder. And I'm not going to talk about all the atrocities that have been committed against me. Actually, that's not true. In third grade, I punched Alice Green in the face and gave him a black eye. And that's the only act of violence I've ever committed in my life. Oh, we were just talking about acts of violence? Well, <laughs> I've never committed any murders. Okay, okay. <laughs> Valid. Um, so... Carneal goes to jail, and the ne late the next year, in October of 1998, he pleads guilty, but mentally ill. 
Okay. Yeah. So on December 15th, he is sentenced to life with the possibility of parole in 25 years. Fucking heads up. It's been 25 years. It's this year, 2022. Um... So he's up for his parole hearing, which yeah. honestly, I'll probably follow up on that because like, I've never actually heard of somebody being charged guilty, but mentally ill. Yeah. I didn't think that that. Like, I always thought th- it was I'm... non-guilty by reason of insanity. Right. Yeah. But I guess he wasn't like insane. He was just sick. Like, yeah. He was just like, he was just like kind of mentally ill. Well, no, he was mentally ill. He just wasn't going through it like a psychotic episode. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, so he re- receives a life sentence. Then he is held at a Department of Juvenile Justice facility in Crikenden and transferred to a Kentucky Department of Corrections facility in LaGrange at age 18, where he remained. Um, in 2007, he requests a retrial due to the claim that he was too mentally ill to plead guilty. Um, that request is denied. Then in 2012, he tries to withdraw his guilty plea claiming mental illness and stating that he was undiagnosed at the time, which I believe he suffers from some kind of schizoaffective disorder, Mm. um, which makes the vent people make a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I definitely, okay. I definitely do think that this, that he has to face the consequences of these actions because he did like with a, like, you know, in his coherent mind, commit these violent acts. Right. But at the same time, he should be in a mental facility. Because yeah. like, if he was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, even, like, just, I'm telling you, just with bent people, like, he should have been in a mental health facility. Because, like, it's still, it's still treating them like a human being. They're still a fucking human being. Yeah, he I don't needed... think he needs to be in jail. Exactly. He needed, he needs mental medical attention. Right. So, in 2012, he tries to withdraw that guilty plea claiming mental illness, stating that he was undiagnosed at the time, and the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals denies due to it not being timely enough because, that, like, yeah. 15 years have passed. That's fair. Yeah. Um, and a $42 million settlement was decided in favor of the families of the deceased but Carneal had no assets because he was 14, and the parents' insurance, Kentucky Farm Bureau, has insisted that they are not liable, and so they are not paying out for these family of the deceased victims. What the fuck? What the fuck, Kentucky Farm Bureau? Like, literally, like, Kentucky residents were murdered as children, but... It's not your fucking problem, I guess. Yeah, that's not, you know, it's not like you're, it's not like you're an insurance company who insures people for tragedies. Totally not. No. So, um, speaking of victims, um, the parents of three of the victims filed a lawsuit for $33 million against two porn companies, a few computer game companies, and the creators and distributors of the films Natural Born Killers and The Basketball Diaries, which is the the movie with that Carneal was kind of obsessed with. Um, they asserted that video games helped Carneal practice shooting because, you know, he fired eight shots, he had struck eight people. So what you're telling me is that these people have never played a video game in their entire life. Maybe. Maybe Because, not. like, okay, listen, listen. As somebody, as a gamer, uh, <laughs> no, like, I, I literally, I did a huge, like, research project on, uh, like, if playing violent video games uh, led to any kind of, like, violent tendencies, and there is absolutely no psychological proof, evidence, or anything like that to even suggest that it would make you more violent. Um, Like, I have literally played the 
worst of the worst. I used to speedrun Doom. Like, I... I've played the most violent video games you can imagine, and I've never killed anybody. And I still have to take three deep breaths before I shoot anything. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals agrees with you, because in 2002, they dismissed the case, stating it was simply too far a leap from shooting characters on a screen to shooting people in a classroom. Yes. And I have to agree with them. And I understand where this family is coming from, because they're not getting justice... And they just want justice somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I can't imagine what it's like to be told no by, you know, Kentucky Farm Bureau for this settlement that you are owed that does not even begin to compare to having your child with you. Exactly. Like, it's not like it's any the of the... It's the least they can fucking do. The absolute bare fucking minimum, and they're not doing it. Like... It's disgusting. Check on your kids. Please. Check on your friends' kids. Have open and honest and real conversations about mental health with them. Because you don't know what the fuck they are capable of. And you don't know what the fuck they're going through. I understand that, like, you know, we oh, we were all teenagers. Yeah, we were all teenagers, but, like, you know, just for an example, my parents were teenagers in the 90s. I was a teenager, like, in, like, you know, the early 2000s, like, the late 20- 2000s? The late 2000s? Early 2010s? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it was a completely different fucking world. Absolutely. And Check I fully, on. The world now, Light I would years. say, is more similar to our upbringing than our parents. Mm-hmm. But, like, these kids are sneaky as fuck, dude. Oh, they're so sneaky. Listen, they are so ridiculously sneaky. And I promise you, like, some of the things that I've seen kids do with the internet... Oh, my God. ...blows my fucking mind. Me too. Like, I was, like, I was, I was around when the internet became the internet. I don't know, like... We made internet culture what it is, I think. Listen, I was an original subscriber to Smosh. And, oh my god! And I was an original subscriber to uh, Rhett and Link. So <gasps> yeah! Fucking love Rhett and Link! <laughs> like, I'm telling you, we were there We were there for the birth of the internet. And... I don't want us to sound too excited, but we do need some joy after an hour of talking about soul-crushing murders. Literally an hour of soul-crushing murders. Listen, man. I just wanted to talk about how I remember when YouTube didn't have ads. (laughs) (laughs) You mean two unskippable ads in a row, and then two more unskippable ads in the middle? (sighs) Fuck them. But no, like, seriously, for real, on a real note, please check on your kids. Please, please, please. And if you tell, if you can look at your kid and you know that something is up, if they, like, are just being absolutely avoidant, if they are, like, you know, trying to maintain that everything is just absolutely perfectly fucking fine, like, maybe, I don't know, take them to a mental health professional. Like, therapy, therapy isn't the devil's work. Like, and... If they're not in a crisis situation, you don't need to jump immediately to a crisis intervention. No. It can be as simple as, hey, let's go to family as a, or therapy as a family just to learn how to better communicate with each other. Because therapy isn't for people who are sick or fucked up or crazy. It is simply a, like, it's a health service to help you continue to think clearly and communicate clearly and learn skills that make you more personable and help you understand people around you and understand yourself. 
emotional intelligence and compassion and empathy empathy and all of these things they're all skills that we learn like we like learn them our whole lives and all therapy is is just a tool to expand those skills it's like tutoring yeah it's brain exercises but for your emotions emotional exercises i need to do a couple jump squats (laughs) i think that's all we got today i think so all right, man, we that love y'all. It was hard. I <laughs> said, man, that was hard. Oh, it was so hard. My little heart is broken, and none of these things even affected me. I can't imagine what the almost 100 vic- like total victims yeah. between our two stories, like how many lives they touched overall and how many people are missing them. It's heartbreaking damn my chest feels empty me too well listen y'all be safe and y'all lock lock your your fucking fucking doors. doors